Welcome to the Enmel Platform Podcast, brought to you by Neptun AI. The show where Pyotanij Vids and Orimas Grisunas, together with top MLOps practitioners, explore the world of internal ML platforms and MLOps stack components. This is a special, end-of-the-year episode, focusing on LLMs and LLMOps, the state of MLOps, and what's next in 2024. It will remain like that and, and gets more obvious how closely DevOps team needs to work with uh, MLLMOps team if they won't be called the same. Maybe it could be called a new area of MLOps uh, that is being created, so guardrails, basically. I think that uh, with agent architecture, I, I think that we'll be exploring this, this a lot. Because, for example, OpenAI in their uh, press releases, not press releases, even conferences, they are kind of projecting AGI in five years or something, I think. Hello everyone, this is a special episode of Machine Learning Platform Podcast and in it, me together with uh, Neptune's founder and CEO Piotr Nedvich, we will be talking about a review. Actually, we will be doing a review of uh, 2023. We will talk about what happened in the MLOps market. We will touch upon some interesting topics when it comes to machine learning platforms specifically. Of course, we will not be avoiding large language model topic and we will probably spend quite a lot of time uh, talking about it. And of course, we'll finish up the episode with some of our predictions of what we expect to happen in this market in 2024. So hopefully it will be interesting for you and super, super glad to see you here. Piotr, you wrote the article MLOps is an extension of DevOps, not a fork, and then talked about it with Orimas on MLOps Lit podcast later this year. What's your stance on it now? My thoughts are quite ML thoughts, not binary. So it is not, uh, I don't have a binary answer. Yes, it happened or not. I think uh, to some extent, this direction is still valid because we see that there are more people from soft, traditional software development uh, coming to ML space, or maybe I should say LMOP space basically solving, are able to solve problems that before large language models were solvable using traditional ML or deep learning. So I see this movement that that, uh, today more engineers uh, are involved in AI projects. At the same time, um, large language models and working with them on production it is something that like I'm not hearing very often about production, like really production, uh, maybe use cases, yes, but really large language models being used in production and, and uh, as always, new capabilities, new algorithms, new techniques brings new challenges. So we have like in order to operate those models we we have even more uh, requirements and things to solve than we used to have with uh, more traditional ml deep learning models on production so uh, but 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 in an essence what i want to like my 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 article my thesis was about the similarity between between those two uh, uh, spaces, tech stacks, methodologies, and how important it is that they would work together, and I think it is uh, it is very very relevant today, where yeah you need to you, you need to make uh, you need like large language models very often are consumed through API. Mm. And it is something that very much has to work hand to hand with with your traditional software where you you're using it. So so I think that that these trends of those two fields are converging. Maybe it would be called differently, but getting closer is is going is something we are going to see. What do you think, Aurimas, uh, on that? You no, know, the backgrounds that I'm coming from. I do believe that uh, most of the challenges that we were solving in machine learning 
when it comes to oper operationalizing all of the processes, we're kind of already very close to DevOps. So I was always, uh, I always had this also thought in my mind that it is, you know, we don't need to create a new uh, paradigm specifically for it. It's more of the extension of DevOps, right? Um, but we cannot kind of follow completely with DevOps principles because of course there's data involved, uh, but it's mostly around training processes and not necessarily serving processes. So not deployment of the models. When it comes to deployment of the models, what I've seen, it was always just a pure DevOps practice, right? So it's not that different. It's always, almost always served by an API, as I mentioned. So the deployment is no different apart from the fact that you need to load some big binary into memory and yeah. the results are non-deterministic, partially deterministic because it's still a very big kind of function underneath, but it's so big that we are having problems explaining it. Uh, but the patterns remain the same. You need to test it. You need to uh, do maybe some uh, blue-green deployments, maybe some canary releases, right? You can't avoid that. And uh, the processes around it are the same. I think Just it the package gets even, right? even more DevOps-ish to, to some extent because with the new models, if, for instance, if you want to combine large bandwidth model with some outputs from deep specialized deep learning model, a very natural way to do is to, uh, to, uh, to use it as agent, for instance, of, of, a, of a large language model. And more agents, agents you have, more dependencies, more, more versions to synchronize. Uh, and it is something that, that uh, we are dealing with in software space for years. So I think, I think it is, uh, yeah, it will remain like that and, and gets more obvious how closely DevOps team needs to work with uh, ML LMOps team, if they won't be called the same. And actually, when it comes to, you mentioned agents, right? So all of these uh, multi-agent systems where multiple LLMs are communicating between each other to produce final result. To me, it's uh, like, I'm also coming from partially from uh, DevOps and the cloud engineering background. To me, it seems very similar to what service meshes trying to do so the communication patterns right so you have proxies between kind of applications so in our case applications are large language models but you still need to be able to trace what is happening in between how the requests are traveling uh, where they are smart smarter proxies no? <laughs> it's yeah yeah exactly they are black box black box applications basically of course then uh, there is the data side of things that is not as devopsish the devopsish Opsish, right? Uh, so data itself is non-deterministic, but uh, it's only kind of important when you're thinking about specifically monitoring machine learning models and in a specific way, not uh, software, regular software practices related way and training of models. Uh, but still you can uh, think about those processes. Uh, you can wrap all of those processes around regular monitoring practices. It's just what you do with the data that you receive is different, right? I think that we'll see like around data, it's, it would be a little bit more, I think, okay, maybe we should call it compliance, security, ethic, don't know, but uh, what's the right term, but what's on production? Uh, yeah, like, how we would make sure that the data that model is is getting wouldn't exploit model in a way that we don't want. Uh, so, so I think it, again, like it's nothing new in software. Of course, we in traditional software, uh, but I think that that we'll see a development on this end as well. So. I think GitLab is calling DevSecOps. Yeah, so maybe we'll be calling LMSecOps or, okay, I'm not good in names, but 
but I think that there is uh, that this area will be growing uh, once more of those models or once we have more and more companies applying those models on uh, for production use cases this will be important as well piots in the article mlops is an extension of devops not a fork you discuss the definitions of experiment tracking model versioning and ml metadata store components what are your current thoughts on this i think that what uh, Piotr spoke about is that uh, model registry in a sense is just another way of packaging software right so we already have uh, uh, software uh, re package repositories out there. For example, Nexus, very popular open source one, right? So model registry, in a sense, is the same thing. And uh, it's just for uh, models, so deployables of models. And they can be packaged also in different ways. It can be either a uh, Docker container that already contains the full deployable or similar. But it is also very close to software engineering world. So if you can provide such a package that can be deployed uh, with a specific, I don't know, command or uh, be it can be wrapped in a specific way in already existing software, it's just another uh, type of uh, package registry, kind of, right? I think that's uh, what you were thinking about, Piotr, or do you have some additional thoughts around it? For quite some time, I I thought that uh, model registry component shouldn't be equal to model packaging. Like there are two different mm. uh, concepts and different jobs to be done. And model registry should be very flexible when it comes to model package format and i think this need is uh, now even more like visible because uh, because of the dependencies of external systems external versions um, it is okay for some use cases it, it can be just a docker right and it is standalone doesn't need to communicate with external world easy but uh, with multimodal use cases, this is usually a set of versions that you want to somehow fix that, okay, this is tested when we are using this version of, of this model, this set of agents, etc., etc. So, So I think that we will see, uh, like we have in Python requirements.txt, file where we have where where easy way to control you know all the dependencies but within a within the uh, single uh, python service we will have similar things uh, for large language models uh, as well and and a model registry for me this more about having uh, like having a place where I understand what are the models I have. Uh, I'm able to reproduce them. I, may, I, I have everything that is needed to deploy it. Or, but, it is, but what deployment means in this context is not necessarily deploying a Docker image somewhere, right? It can be purely virtual. Like it is how I am going to configure set of APIs and pods. It can be also for as a deployment. So, um, yeah. So when it comes to software deployment, I I have never seen model registry as a as a component who sh that should do that, but rather a place a registry that is more passive that keeps all the metadata um, needed for me to understand what this model is about, what it's, what are the dependencies, what is the story of this model, how it was created, things like that. That's why for me, experiment tracker and model registry were always quite close. Mm -hmm. But would, okay. So what do you see also models that are not ready for even considering for, for deployment also? 
Absolutely. Something to be kept in the model registry? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We just need, we, I think it is just a matter of labeling it. Maybe a tag or so stage. But definitely, definitely it makes sense uh, yeah, to, to, have a, to have a place where you can store a concept of a model. But this concept got recently uh, broader than it used to be. With layoffs happening this year, there is a general trend of people getting more efficient. In your opinion, does it affect the composition of ML teams? Is ops going to be centralized even more? Do you still believe that MLOps teams should consist of DevOps engineers, backend software engineers, and data scientists, ML researchers? I think it is uh, still valid, uh, but I just, I just wanted to um, say that I don't see uh, team composition so much related to layoffs. But okay, it is all about efficiency. So if you if you have pure R and uh, pure research ML team in an organization, they cannot be. They are usually not able to do POCs forever. And it is now. It is uh, the pressure is higher to cut such forever POC type of uh, projects and teams. Uh, so you're ending up rather with, uh, but you wouldn't be cutting things that are generating uh, revenue or, or profitable for, for your business. So I think that this is a force that push. I, I was always, uh, I was always a bigger believer in decentralized ML teams, teams that are very close to problems, uh, uh, business problems that are within particular business units. But at the same time, it is not necessarily true when we are talking about ML platform team, because platform teams are, are there to not to repeat the same thing in many times within one organization to share processes and infra. So I think it is, so we have, when it comes to efficiency, there is another force, uh, that would move, yeah, that would encourage companies to share what can be shared. So I think when it comes to ML teams, I see them rather uh, getting closer to business units because they, the, the, the era of a lot of POCs, I think <laughs> it is hard, like, yeah, it's, it, is, it would be more challenging. Do you agree that there is no connection between LLMs and layoffs in the industry? I think that it's partially true. Of course, everyone is laying off because of the um, startup landscape trend that we see, right? So the company is becoming more efficient in this uh, hard economic situation. But again, the rise of LLMs, I do believe that it impacted who got laid off quite a lot because uh, for example, of course, we are talking about LLM use cases, use cases that LLMs can solve and use cases that uh, let's call them now classic machine learning models can solve, right? And they will always remain like uh, um, use cases that require very high throughput in the very uh, fast speeds, like ranking systems and similar. But then we have uh, the entire field of NLP, right? So I think that NLP, classic NLP is dead, right? Most likely. Most of the use cases will be solved by LLMs. And uh, there are very lot of researchers, I think, and data scientists who tried to solve NLP use cases for companies and LLMs came and that's it. You don't need uh, like classical NLP models almost anymore, right? Because LLMs can solve most of it and they are getting cheaper. Uh, like even the weakest LLMs, like not, uh, not talking about GPT-4, like GPT-3, 0.5 is good enough and better at solving these problems than uh, classic NLP models, right? So I think that had uh, a big impact also on who got laid off. I think these problems are now a lot less researchy because uh, 
engineers can solve them, right? Engineers can start uh, plugging in LLMs with documents and summarizing these documents and or extracting named entities from a document. You don't need a data scientist there anymore. As well, we also spoke, uh, I remember in one of our podcast episodes about uh, how we believe uh, data scientists have to evolve. So either they become more of a uh, business BI analyst, so closer to analytics or becoming machine learning engineers. And I still think that is the case, but then probably we'll have uh, also engineers who would be just engineers and not labeled machine learning engineers who can also solve machine learning related problems. So do you see like a case where let's say there is okay NLP problem that is very important for production use case. It is on production. It was built by it was built by data scientists and and is operated. It is it is definitely would uh, would would figure try to figure out whether it's what you can do with large language models to replace it or improve it. But I would assume that. The, the task would be given in such case, like to improve it, to be, there is testing uh, around it to data scientists first. That's why I, but okay, so it is one I case. Agree, yeah. Second case, mm -hmm. yes, like it is not on production. They are playing, they are trying to figure out what they can get. It is still kind of POC research project. This, I think it is very likely to be killed. Like if they spend half a year or a year already and results are not so great <laughs> and imagine that in two weeks there is a, some software engineer intern who came up <laughs> with something equally or more promising this is very tempting to kill this uh, poc traditional nlp uh, project but i like in in, in those two examples uh, i think that the biggest the main thing is whether it's on production or not, whether it's used or not. It really depends on what you label production, right? Uh, if you're requiring these instant uh, answers from your model, then of course not. But uh, there are just use cases where you summarize documents, you uh, do some uh, sentiment analysis, you extract things from text like uh, named entities, etc. So these are very legit production use cases. I think that uh, a lot of companies rely on to optimize their work day to day. It's not user facing, it's usually internal and maybe cutting, cutting other costs uh, significantly, but these are in my mind production use cases. And I do believe that uh, companies have spent a lot of money on data scientists who were building these solutions for the companies to become more efficient in their day-to-day -day operations. At least that, and I know that it's the case. <laughs> so some of them actually are, uh, like some of these remain in POC forever. I guess now uh, it has come to an end <laughs> because no one will be POCing for a lot of money just to not get any result. I think, Aurimas, that maybe what you're saying is something that we will see, but I just... Yeah, I just, for me, it was hard to be, believe that it would happen for production use cases so quickly that, uh, you know, you have a traditional model that's what works. You're dismissing <laughs> uh, data science team or, okay, part of the data science team because you hope you will be able to do the same or better with LM. It may, I think eventually we, we can see this trend, but when we are discussing the layoffs uh, this, of this year, I think, I think. Uh, so you're saying it's too early, basically. Yes, it, it, to, to, I am talking, maybe there are cases like that, but I think that's, that the, 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 if we try to assign weights, the weights would be around uh, global economics needs about efficiency mm -hmm. and cuts the POC projects that are more around, you know, trying to find an edge, but not proven to be delivering value. And, and 
And I would be, I, I don't have data, but I would be interested to see maybe some uh, people can add uh, some points in the comments to see the statistics around layoffs and compare it how it is versus software engineering, for instance, right? Mm. But we, we say, we can say again, and I think here it can be actually here. <laughs> I would believe that LMs had a bigger impact. That's, uh, you know, we, with, with Copilot, I started using it recently myself uh, for Rust that engineer, X engineer, it's very useful because you don't need to remember the methods <laughs> and you <laughs> spend less time on searching through docs. But I think here, I can imagine that you can run some projects faster with a smaller team of more seniorish engineers than a composite, regular composition where you have some seniors, some juniors, I think junior engineers, they are in, in, they could be dismissed uh, more often because of large language models, but don't, don't have data to prove it, but just a gut feeling. RML and Dev or DevOps platform teams more aligned now than they were a year ago. To be honest, I don't see it ever emerging. Like it's my opinion, uh, because uh, there's just a limit of uh, people you can have in a single team. And usually you anyway split even uh, the software platform teams. If you grow big enough as a company, usually they are composed of multiple pieces. So you can have a networking team, a uh, application deployment team, maybe another platform team that only bakes uh, libraries. And I don't see how you could uh, connect machine learning to one of these, like, because it's just too big, too big of an area. When it comes to large language models, I think that they can be relatively easily deployed using regular uh, software deployment patterns. It is a bit different because it is, uh, in some cases, distributed deployment. So usually that's not what you have in regular software, but these are technical problems, like very complicated technical problems and require, I think, very deep uh, software architecture understanding to do it correctly, right? The, so maybe some connection here can be established. Like maybe these models could be deployed by um, software platforms while their training and evaluation would happen in uh, regular machine learning platforms. I think it is, uh, maybe it is too easy to, uh, not too, sorry, not too early to, to see already like, uh, that it is moving this direction or another, but but I think they will be getting closer and, and closer because the testing of um, of such models or maybe we should say model <laughs> set of models working together uh, today it is not so obvious how to do it properly. Like we have different techniques, but but. I don't consider this problem as solved, but I definitely see that it it will be part of the. It already is to some extent, but it was done in a more in a phases where you could kind of independently test models, and then it, independently from software uh, release. Maybe you can do it similarly, but more you know more interconnected it is more end-to-end -end issue you you need to test it so, so i think that we'll see this as a force that would push those teams to at least work closer the same goes with security by the way just to add i do observe and i've always observed that uh, machine learning platform teams are very close to software platform teams, because basically you're building on the same platform. It's not a separate platform. It's the base that is shared. So basically you, the co cooperation, collaboration patterns between the machine learning platform team and a software platform team with let's say core platform team are completely the same. You are using the same infrastructure, building on the same uh, core 
kind of capabilities. It's, it's not far away. <laughs> Even the release cycle and uh, testing, A-B testing cycle is basically built in the same system, usually. Do you think the trend of integrating security into the developer's toolkit, as seen with Sneak, will eventually reach ML builders? Definitely it makes sense. Uh, because you cannot test everything, every, you, you wouldn't catch everything in end-to-end -end tests. That's why it's super important that people who are, you know, developing small details are aware. Uh, so, so it is very valid, but on the other hand, like, and, and I, I believe it has to be done together, but I really believe that with the incoming regulations, companies will need to be able to prove that they at least try to do something, you know, diligently about security and saying that, yeah, like our engineers or our ML engineers are, was, were on the workshop and know the practices wouldn't be enough. They would need to have a, some level of proof, especially in a more, you know, more regulated spaces. So, so I think, Yes, it is needed. In, so in software space, it was always needed. Uh, it was always good when engineers knew the basic practices, but, but still the need of doing audits, doing tests on a higher level end-to-end -end, and, and being able to prove that it was done. Mm, yeah, I think, I think we'll see more of that. And that's why I, I think growing role of the don't know what would be the called how what was this job title this function would be called but something around security and compliance will be will enter more strongly to the picture of ML platform team I'm quite sure about that. Tekton reports a rise in central ML platform teams, especially at large orgs, whereas Clermal finds 58% of ML professionals using a single MLOPS tool with 92% preferring one solution for everything. What is your perspective? I think that the growing percentage of uh, comp companies above 250 employees or 1,000 employees having internal ML platform teams shows that there is a need of unification, simplification, tech stack for ML teams that would be implementing particular ML use cases. Not, not surprising. At the same time, uh, looking at the clear ML report saying that 58% of people use one ML plat uh, platform, MLOps platform or tool, and 92% would like to use one platform for everything. I think it is especially the second number, second, uh, second part that 92 would like to use me too it's not surprising that's if if i could use one i wouldn't need ml platform team and why i should have a team if i could have a, a tool that does everything right it is very like it is a better way to to solve this particular need of unification tech stack but <laughs> Uh, I, I, yeah, like I, I would give you another example, more traditional. I would also like to use one uh, content uh, sharing system, not Notion, Google Drive, and Slack, and email. Like I would like to have one tool, but the question is how likely it is that it will be that I will have a one tool that works for my setup for my. Uh, infrastructure for my use cases out of the box and won't clutter me with things that I don't need. Mm. And I think it is the, it is the reason why, uh, why we have a growing number of internal ML platform teams. It is very hard. I don't believe it is really doable to create one market standard ML platform team that will work for everybody in such a growing space, fast growing space like ML. Those requirements, the methods are, are changing. It is very hard. Bigger system you have, harder is it to, to change it. So, so yeah, I, I think 
I think the data scientists and companies would like to have that the goal is, I don't want to care about tech stack for ML. <laughs> I just want to solve my ML use cases uh, quickly in a repeatable, under control, secure way <laughs> that perform. More obstacles I can remove, the better. Uh, so I've seen, I've seen one. I have participated in building of one. It it was based on uh, AWS SageMaker. So yes, AWS SageMaker provides uh, a bunch of capabilities, but uh, unfortunately, it's it like it's good for starting out. I think because everything is in a single place, but. Uh, once you start moving to production, you start seeing that you're lacking certain capabilities. And I think that, uh, for example, what also Tecton is saying, that they're catering really to very heavy production use cases, right? So they are spending a lot of time in one specific component that is crucial for uh, deploying machine learning to production, which is very uh, efficient feature organization, creation, storage, and then delivery, because uh, it's not easy to create such a system that would uh, give you a, a fast enough responses. So low enough, enough latency with high accuracy, and then you would be able to uh, transform features on the fly in the very, with very flexible and UX friendly API, right? So it takes big team to just create this one uh, piece of MLOps stack that would be ready, really ready for enterprise and uh, production use cases. I don't think that any end-to-end -end platform is, to be honest, including SageMaker. Again, we are Guys, Would you say that SageMaker is end-to-end -end platform? Uh, it is, is a platform? Or set of components? I understand. Like, like with SageMaker Studio, they kind of uh, already combine uh, quite well the components under a single let's say abstraction, where you don't need to think of everything that much, like as a separate components, you still have a separate pipelines SDK, for example, that you need to be able to use. But uh, when exploring the data, like visualizing the pipelines, seeing the metadata, it's in a single place. You can log in to a single place and you can control everything from there. So you don't care that much about elements. But we are a bit like quality. Each of them lack quality to some extent. As 2023 comes to an end, what's your stance on the single components versus end-to-end -end platform ML debate? So in my mind, nothing much has changed, to be honest. Like we entered uh, 2023 with uh, a split that we currently have in the MLOps, uh, let's say, tool stack. So we have uh, experiment tracking systems. We have feature stores. We have pipelining, uh, authoring, and orchestration tools, deployment tools, and observability systems, because we already had observability systems at 2022, I think. And I think that we leave 2023 with the same split, <laughs> uh, nothing yet merged. Uh, so my prediction is that eventually some of these will merge into a single uh, kind of um, capability and it will become, it will, there will emerge a new standard of what uh, combinations uh, are the best fit, but we are not there yet. No one is merging extensively. I think that uh, observability and experiment tracking is something that is relatively close, uh, like being able to um, analyze both how you create the models and how then they perform in production in the single place. It makes just makes full sense because you have the models that you will be deploying you don't necessarily need to care about the deployment itself because it is a very, very big area that requires a lot of a lot of uh, kind of deep thought around it. But once the models are deployed, you can very easily collect uh, the feedback metrics around how we are performing to the same system and display it in the same system, basically. And it would uh, allow data scientists to really, or machine learning engineers to really not leave one system that much because you would be able to see it in a single place. I think that's a good one. When it comes to, when it comes to components that, that should be merged, of course, we, I'm focused more on experiment tracking and adjacent 
components. Uh, and I fully agree with Arimas on monitoring, especially when you think about large language models where, yeah, where execution is a big part of development process as well and testing. Uh, so I think it makes sense to, to, to look at the model behavior on development stage in a, from similar lenses, as you see the same, very same model operating on production. So I think it makes sense. Don't know when, when the space will get stabilized enough to really figure out how to, you know, how to merge it properly. I think we will, okay. I, I think there is another potentially space, but I, I think it is, I see it as a part of experiment tracker job that you was used not to be so visible, but in fact, it was the job. What is the difference between LLM ops and ML ops? What do you think are the core jobs to be done when operationalizing LLMs? I guess similarities are only there when you're thinking about uh, fine-tuning large language models, right? So uh, the life cycle in the, I guess the model's life cycle in a regular MLOps processes chain is a lot smaller. <laughs> uh, it's the very end of it, right? So fine-tuning the model to fit your use cases. And then uh, when you think about it, it's very similar to uh, any other machine learning de de development, uh, machine learning model development. So any other deep learning model, actually. So you fine tune it and then you just analyze the result. In the context of LLMs, what aspects of ops have become 10 times more critical than they used to be? Like, I think it's just different uh, how you treat them after you have a model. Like, so there's another, just simply another um, piece of the pipeline you need to do, which is prompt engineering and prompt uh, tuning. And I think that monitoring would be would be the okay it's not new it's not new but because you have way less control because it's more complex <laughs> more black boxish more depends on more uh, systems i think understanding how it behaves it is it is uh, harder, more important versus traditional ML. Easier to, to accomplish something bigger, but also easier to fail. Yeah, and also like, uh, but it's still like monitoring, so it's not, nothing new. Like evaluation is also nothing new, but uh, in the case of large language models, we still don't have uh, some general um, methods of evaluating these models that we could use, right? Nothing is still, has still been created. Not, nothing has yet been created. So regular metrics do not fit yeah. evaluation. Uh, people are using other large language models to kind of evaluate outputs of another large language model, which is now I think uh, considered as the best way of evaluating large language models. So it's still not something new, right? It's still model evaluation, but just the methods that At are GitLab, needed there are lacking. don't have it. They have a concept of, okay, maybe it's called differently, but major or main job to be done and minor, something like that. Yeah, there is evaluation, right? And we have then jobs to be done that are way more precise. So I think from main perspective, the set of jobs to be done quite likely is very much similar. But if we go deeper, how you do particular thing, uh, yeah, the differences will be in details, like evaluation. What major sub-problems in LLMs remain unsolved as we transition into 2024? The metrics that we can trust to say that uh, this is the output of large language model that we would expect and find accurate enough for our use case or for our expectation, because you might have, uh, you know, you might have an input, a set of like evaluation set of inputs and outputs that would be ideal for you, right? But it's not so easy to compare text to your preferred text, right? 
the output text to your preferred output text. There are no metrics for that that you can 100% rely on. And that's why we are kind of using these, kind of, these kinds of uh, uh, methods, like using other LLMs to evaluate it, right? And then LLM can say that this output, uh, so you can describe to LLM how you want to grade your output. So you expect this and this, this uh, and this is the grade from one to five. And each of the grades represents some specific uh, values that you would expect from an answer. But this is also super, like, it's just weird, I would say, <laughs> but uh, it works, right? I don't know. So maybe some breakthrough in the, some breakthrough maybe in context comparison between uh, multiple text pieces. Or maybe one more. So we talked about uh, like new things uh, that are maybe a little bit specific to LLMs, but not necessarily like they were there before, but uh, the rise of vector databases and mainly because of uh, this pattern that is very popular now, retrieval augmented generation uh, and uh, basically keeping memory outside of large language model itself so that you can store some embedded data in external vector databases and then you can retrieve that on the fly once while the LLM is kind of actually not by LLM itself, but providing some additional context to your prompt via, uh, via a prompt template so that that context can be used by LLM to answer specific questions because the context window available in LLMs is both, both uh, costly and not long enough to take in like the entire textbook. <laughs> for context, right? But of course, we are also moving um, into in the direction of solving this, either by directly plugging in maybe. Um, Can you do it by agent? So so usually it's, I think it's that's how it would look like, right? You have an agent yeah. that extracts needed context. You can say that it's just your application that extracts that context, right? But uh, and we already, I think, have solutions for that. Like that agents uh, decide on how to extract the context the question needs from an external database <laughs> and uh, inputs it, it into your... I'm thinking problem. whether agent cannot communicate. What would happen if agent communicated in a kind of more compressed vector way? Not by text, right? Because why use natural language if you can send back vector and but communicates to what to model ah you mean uh, without needing to because anyway like um, even if you provide a prompt eventually it's vectorized yeah that's the, uh, exactly exactly so i'm thinking why not to use vector uh, sorry agent that wouldn't be speaking <laughs> uh, natural language but just would be speaking in them vector space, so to speak. <laughs> Maybe it will work out of the box. But, but, that's what we, but that's what we almost do, right? Because you still need to have a question or some context that needs answering provided by human. And uh, that's what we actually do in the retrieval augmented generation systems. We embed it into some vector space and then search vectors in the vector database. And we only translate it to text because we need it as part of a prompt that would yeah. be sent to. So in I my was... mind, it's still, it's still communication in vectors, yeah. just extra few extra steps. <laughs> yes. What use cases do you believe are not meant to be solved by LLMs in 2024? High throughput recommender systems. <laughs> You'll not get anywhere close to the throughput you need, I think, in the next year, maybe at some point in time. but. Doubt, doubtful. <laughs> Maybe we'll need something uh, different that is not LLM, I think, to be able to solve these kinds of problems. In throughput latency, I think we, uh, I think you're right. We will be going. Still, we'll be exploring capabilities. Like, what are the limits if we can wait? And then, once we plateau on that, I think we'll be trying to get it faster, faster and faster. So quite likely there is still a lot of to explore when it comes to limits. 
how smart <laughs> they can get. And I think that 2024, maybe these, like specifically these use cases that are latency critical might be the only ones that will not be solved by the end of 2024 or 2025, I don't know. But I think the, we are talking now, uh, we are now talking a lot about uh, security and how to make LM secure. I think it will be solved by the end of 2024. Like at least there will, actually I see a new, uh, yeah, maybe it could be called a new area of MLOps uh, that it's being created. So guardrails basically. So uh, some proxies that you put before and after the LLM, right? So that you can make sure that anything that goes in there can have some extra security gates, especially when it comes to uh, enterprises. So for example, now I heard of uh, cases where, you know, people will be using LLMs if they are not restricted. To. So for example, if you're in a bank and you have access to um, sensitive data, no one, <laughs> Uh, no one kind of restricts you from accidentally copying some of that and then using it for in the public LLM API, right? But uh, I think what uh, where we will converge, at least in the next year, we'll have companies that will provide these firewalls in between maybe even the public LLM um, that you can plug in into your enterprise, even a bank, for example, and then allow all of your users going through this specific endpoint instead of uh, going to these public uh, LLMs directly. Um, and I think we'll solve security next year. I think uh, most of the cases that are now kind of labeled as not too uh, restrictive security wise for LLMs will be not there anymore. So maybe only latency and... <laughs> Maybe for some cases, of course, uh, when you need 99% accuracy, maybe also not, but uh, there are not that many of these, right? I think that uh, with agent architecture, I, I think that we'll be exploring this, this a lot. It would be harder to say, like they, they will be so much more and more connected so it would be hard to say whether it's solved by LM or not. Maybe it is solved by LM with classical model next to it. How do you count that? Uh, so definitely, okay. <laughs> so when the latency is important, quite likely technically there is, there is no way with, I, I was thinking about uh, very specific problems where data is highly confidential regulated but in this case you can go with open source models mm. so it doesn't count <laughs> then much to the frustration of ml researchers it appears that still the best way to move forward is to put more layers and more neurons what is your stance on this i'm wondering how far we can continue going with gpt and basically just uh, transformer architecture. I think something new will have to be created for a bigger leap or a combination of a lot of these into a single kind of organism. I think it will be done at the same time. Like the hardware is getting more powerful. I don't know how fast it is growing, but it was growing. It used to grow exponentially. Uh, don't know what is the pace currently, but but still growing. Uh, so if you have a safe bet, that's putting more nodes, putting more uh, electricity leads to better results. I think this will be explored. Maybe not everybody, not every team in the world is, is can do that, but, but I think we won't wait. We will be putting more and more and, and trying uh, yeah, like to discover the limits. At the same time, uh, I think, you know, we, we have this latency challenges, scale challenges, cost challenges. And it is all about like they, they can be solved uh, by doing something smarter when it comes to architecture of those networks. So I think 
on one hand, we'll be uh, discovering capabilities and <laughs> we won't be uh, thinking about, oh, too much electricity. No, we will go full force to understand what, what is possible. I'm quite sure on that. But on the other hand, uh, you have movements, how we can compress it, how we can get similar performance, but, 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 uh, but maybe use less, yeah, less power, less resources. So I, I, okay, I think that it will be happening in parallel. And once we have a better um, architecture, quite likely we'll try to use it with similar or bigger scale than, than, than the models we have today. Just understands, you know, what on top we can get. Yeah, because, for example, OpenAI in their uh, press releases, not press releases, even conferences, they are kind of projecting AGI in five years or something, I think. <laughs> so I'm wondering if AGI will be, I don't think it will be transformer based. Probably we'll have, we'll have to find something new, right? To make it happen. <laughs> because I'm wondering what are the, what are the limits of uh, this current approach? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I remember Wojtek, uh, I, I, Wojtek Zaremba, one of uh, my discussions with Wojtek, uh, it was eight years ago or so, one of the co-founders of OpenAI. At that time, he, believe, he believed that AGI is a, it's just scale. It is, so we can do it with like, okay, maybe, maybe. I misunderstood him, but I remember that it was going in line that with this architecture, we can make it, but it is just scale. Like, don't know whether it's this amount of this amount, but okay, just matter of scale. What do you foresee happening in 2024? I think development around, let's call it prompt altering. <laughs> so we have long chain, but uh, I've heard a couple of times that uh, it's not necessarily okay. It's doing a great job, but it's not necessarily the ultimate data model, how to represent prompts, agents. Um, so I, I expect to see some development here as well, especially if we, yeah, if we, okay, it's easy to adjust. Uh, getting back to this uh, concept of having somewhere this external knowledge vectorized. So this will need to work together. So I think, yeah, we see some something here. Mm, I am curious, but don't know how to do it. Uh, having experience uh, as a user of ChatGPT or, you know, or uh, other tools that are using it under the hood. The very first result you get is usually quite good, but it is not necessarily easy to iterate with it in a kind of stable way. I just want to replace maybe those two words or, and I'm getting something <laughs> uh, reorganized uh, too much from what I needed, I think. I don't know how to do it, but something that would keep this more stable and allow for tiny changes, local changes. Uh, but I'm talking here from user perspective, it's something that I would like to see. I think that, uh, so my, my additional thought is that maybe some new players will start from LLMs in a specific areas. So maybe it could be. I don't know, uh, a framework of training. It's so simple, similar to uh, Langchain, right? A framework to train LLMs, and then we could expand to more use cases. So maybe it's also a niche where you can start your business, but then expand somewhere else. Because I don't think that just sticking to LLMs makes sense because then you're you know, losing a lot of market. It's not a dumb idea, but only I think it's still viable only for the companies that only do LLMs. Because if you're a company and you need a tool, then you will also need then two tools, right? One for uh, something uh, for classical ML and then one separate one for large language models. And I don't think that uh, companies that are doing classical ML are not in a good place to introduce LLM support. 
as a addition to the already existing. The ML Platform Podcast was brought to you by Neptune AI. If you'd like to learn more about ML Platforms and MLOps, check our blog at neptune.ai slash blog. Follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, check out how we help teams solve MLOps challenges with our experiment tracking at neptune.ai. To get notified of future episodes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.